Hello, I'm Julie Bindle, and this podcast episode is the story of James Essers. James was a barrister, had been volunteering as a counsellor at Childline in his spare time, in the evenings, for quite a while when he decided that he would change careers and embarked upon a five-year psychotherapy course. Three years in, he was booted off that course and subsequently booted out of Childline. Why? Well, I'm afraid it's the usual. James dared to question the transgender ideology that says that we have to instantly affirm even children who present as transgender rather than offering any talking therapies, any exploration of issues they might have, of traumas they might have encountered that would lead them to becoming so distressed in their sexed bodies. Here's his story. I was originally practising as a a barrister, working in crime and and justice, and then I started volunteering at Childline, um, counselling children as as a volunteer for a number of years and I I was doing that once a week and I was finding it so fulfilling I thought actually I'd quite like to spend the rest of my life doing this and so I took the decision to basically transition into a new vocation I I started doing a master's degree in psychotherapy on the side of my full-time job um, which was on weekends and the plan was basically to do this five-year course and to set up a private practice as a therapist um, because I just wanted to be able to help people and I, I, I've always being passionate and also very reflective on mental health issues anyway and the way society is going generally I think mental health uh, collectively is taking a bit of a turn for the worst which I'm sure we'll get on to. We, we should actually definitely get on to that because um, I'm a carer for an adult with profound mental health um, issues and you know who's relatively well right now but over the years when we were trying to get help for her there was there was absolutely nothing available and we're talking about a chronic condition and there was absolutely nothing and i think most people unless they have to access those services or try to have got no idea that we've got barely anything of worth and yet there you were on top of a a busy pressured career choosing to volunteer which is something that most people wouldn't bother doing what, what led you to decide to do unpaid work with, with Childline? I mean, I'd always respected it as an organisation, although, as we'll get on to shortly, my, my feelings on that have slightly shifted now. But, you know, I'd always heard and read about the good work that they had done. I'd never needed their services, but I knew of others when I was growing up who had done. Um, as I said, I've always been interested in mental health um, and particularly for children. Um, because there's a lot of issues facing the world right now. And I found that, again, taking some of the women's rights groups and the gay community have been very good, actually, at kind of banding together, making their voices heard. But children don't have that. Um, children need adults to safeguard them and to think about their welfare and their well-being. And so it's that vulnerability that made me think that I wanted to be able to help children m- more than adults. I mean, I was training as an adult psychotherapist, but this volunteering with Childline was enabling me to assist some, some pretty vulnerable children. And, you know, it was, it was for all manner of things. You know, it, it could be 
could be relationship problems, it could be bullying, it could be all the way up into self-harm and, you know, active suicidality. So I spoke to such a range of young people, but I, I mean, I, yes, it was unpaid and, and, you know, I would do it after I left work. My shift used to finish at about 11pm, but I, it, for me, it was actually the most fulfilling part of my life. Yeah, yes, and and then obviously you were so captivated by it that you decided, uh, you know, to to embark on a big career change. So it must have particularly stung when things started to go wrong. And tell me about the very beginnings of that. What happened? Yeah. So in total, before they before Charblind gave me the boot, I I'd been there for about five years, and at the beginning. I didn't really notice any young people coming through with this presentation, but as the years went on, there were more and more coming through to me saying that they were trans or they were trapped in the wrong body. And to be honest, I knew nothing of this. This wasn't an issue that I particularly concerned myself with previously, but I felt that I needed to upskill myself on this. And I was, you know, the back of my mind, I was thinking, you know, what what is going on here from a mental health perspective? Because and particularly being on the on the master's degree, I was spending a lot of time reflecting on mental health presentation. So I started researching it. I started looking at the various papers and, and limited studies that have been done. I started looking at some of the material that lots of these trans rights groups were putting out, and I found myself getting extremely concerned about what was happening here. And it was beginning to appear to me at that stage that ideology was taking hold in, in, in a mental health field, um, which should should never happen. I mean, it goes against the core principles of psychotherapy and counselling. So that was basically the beginning of it. And then it kind of dominoed. Um, I started by raising some concerns internally with, within Childline and the NSPCC about some of the materials that they were putting out. I remember one particular day, which I often cite, which is that I walked into the counselling room there and there were stonewall posters plastered all over the wall saying some people are trans, get over it. God, on a, in a counselling room? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that whole get over it thing. I remember years ago, before Stonewall jumped on the trans train, you know, I'm a lesbian and seeing people wearing T-shirts, I'm a lesbian, get over it. And I just thought, do you know what? You know, I've been an out and proud lesbian since the 70s. I came out when I was still in my teens. I've fought for lesbian liberation along with women's liberation all my adult life. And I do not take prisoners. You know, I'm I'm forthright. But the idea of telling people, I'm a lesbian, get over it. It's an anathema. It's the worst, it's the worst tool you can use to educate people. So that, that tone in and of itself, even if you remove it from the harmful trans ideology, is just such a misstep, I think. I agree. I mean, let's let's pretend for a moment that this isn't just about pushing a dangerous ideology. Let's imagine that this is purely wanting equal rights. And we think back to the civil rights movement in America. I mean, Martin Luther King wasn't putting out posters saying we're black, get over it. You know, it was actually and I don't as you say, I don't think that would be particularly effective either. You have to bring people with you and show them that how you can collaborate together and have an air of respect and positivity between people. But this is basically I mean, I, I read it, and I think many others read it, is very aggressive, actually, yes. in nature. Um, and actually, just to say that since then, because I've got some family that live nearby where the Childline counselling space is, and I walked by a few weeks ago, and I saw that there was a trans pride flag now hanging up in the window of the counselling room as well. So it's actually escalated in terms of the ideology present there. But anyway, so I saw that, 
and I, you know, I raised that concern with my supervisors. I said, you know, should we really be having this in the room, given that, number one, there should be a neutral space in terms of ideology. And number two, when we're dealing with mental health, particularly mental health of children, surely we must have the floor open to have maybe even sensitive or controversial debates, discussions around this, about the best way to engage with this. Because, you know, we don't have all the answers. And for a child saying they're trapped in the wrong body, I mean, it's it's such a complex field to work in. It's not so simple as to just say, get over it. Right. Um, so, yeah, so I started raising my concerns internally. I then started to try and link up with other therapists and trainee therapists because I was concerned about what was happening more generally. I mean, my own training course, you know, we did modules on sex and gender and they were very much pushing the same ideological stance. Um, so I, I discovered some other therapists online who now became the group Thoughtful Therapists that I'm, I'm involved in. And we basically decided that something had to be done to try and reverse what was happening in the mental health field. So I wrote a couple of articles um, basically talking about the way in which ideology had taken this over. And I started as well for the first time speaking out about medicalizing children and the fact that we were pushing children down medical pathways rather than using explorative therapy as we would for any other mental health condition. Um, and then the key thing that happened was that I decided to write a petition to the government because at that point the government were pushing forward with this conversion therapy ban, which had significant risks in terms of a chilling effect on therapists, and they wanted to include gender identity in this, you know, which is this conflation between sexuality and gender identity, which I'm sure we can talk about a bit later. So I wrote this petition to the government, as any citizen is entitled to do in this country. It got 10,000 signatures and quite a favourable response from the government. And actually, the government ended up U-turning and dropped gender identity from the proposal to ban it, which shows that the petition was a success in some ways. Um, and I did a few articles and a few interviews around the time of the petition. And then, and just to say, I was getting a lot of abuse online. You know, that that was starting from these kind of trans activist groups and individuals, but I just tried to ignore it. And then May 21, Wednesday, you know, I still remember the days of the week with this for some reason, but... I received an email from the deputy chief executive officer of my place of study, which is a place called Metanoia Institute, uh, because therapy is taught in these kind of small training organisations. And you were paying for your study, of course. I was paying. It was, I mean, I was three years in and I paid well over 10 grand. You know, basically I had, I was having, I was doing full-time work to pay my way through the course. Yeah, so the, yeah, the deputy chief executive officer emails me out of the blue and says, We've received some complaints, although they never told me what the complaints were. Um, and could I meet with them to have a discussion about what I'd been speaking about on social media and my petition? And I responded to that email quite shocked. And I said, I'm not sure what I've done to bring about complaints. Um, and I expressed a bit of anxiety around that. But I said, of course, I'll meet with you. And the response came the same day. There was absolutely nothing to be worried about. We don't want you to feel anxious at all. This is just an informal chat with their words. So I said, fair enough, I'm going to take them at their word. At the end of the day, you know, this is my place of study. I'm a student. I'm sure they have my best interests at heart. So we set up a meeting for two days later on the Friday. Fast forward 24 hours to the Thursday. And then in the middle of the day, I see a notification on my laptop and up pops the deputy chief executive officer's name and the subject line says termination of contract. And this was a... A two paragraph email in which I was told that because I brought 
the institution and my profession into disrepute that I was being expelled with immediate effect. So let me just clarify. You were being expelled from your study, from your yes. course. Yes. And how was that linked to Childline? What was the relationship between the two? The, there wasn't any direct relationship between the two. Um, although within a matter of weeks of my expulsion from the course, Childline also gave me the boot. So uh, let's So let's go back to when you received that email, because yeah. I can only imagine how that felt. And I can almost feel the pit of the stomach kind of horror of that sort of thing happening. And unfortunately, <laughs> it's happened to me, so I, yeah. I can empathise. What on earth did you do? Uh, in that moment, well, my my first response was, shock and, and disbelief I thought they, they must have made a mistake they, they, they must have the wrong person um, so immediately I went to respond to the email to say you must have made a mistake and I discovered that they had blocked my email address they had deleted my university email address so I couldn't even respond to the email this is within minutes of me receiving it um, and that's yeah. that's when I knew that this this was real and basically and I'm very thankful and lucky that I had both my my girlfriend at the time and also my family we were all at, um, at my mother's um, home together I basically crumbled um, I mean I was I was in an absolute state I was inconsolable and I I mean my life as I knew it basically was was over I, I'd, I'd actually just been signed off by my institution about two or three weeks beforehand to set up a private practice where I could start seeing clients privately and, and, and start to earn some of the money back that I paid on the course. So, you know, my, my life, as far as I was concerned, was set out and had a pathway and in a single email that went up in flames. Where were you in terms of getting your qualification that you needed to go into private practice? How far along the course were you? I was just about to finish the, th the third year. It's a five-year course. Um, yeah, so it's 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 a long old commitment, and yeah, I mean psychotherapy training isn't cheap, but if the institution sign you off for private practice prior to graduating with their authorization, you can basically see clients. I'd already been seeing clients on a voluntary placement at the at the charity Mind um, for a couple of years, so I, I was already seeing clients. I just wasn't seeing paid clients. It was just for free, basically. But my understanding is that anyone training to do psychotherapy. Um, needs to start, like junior doctors, you need to actually start doing the work right. before you qualify in the end. And you must yeah. have, your whole life was geared towards this commitment. And then, as you say, it was gone. And I, I just want people to understand what this feels like. And, and I don't want to drag up I mean, obviously, it's there with you all the time. So, I mean, we're talking about it. But when Billy Bragg says that cancel culture is just about incredibly wealthy people with 12 acres in a gated community, obviously, he was referring to Joe Rowling. Uh, you know, this is just about the odd rich person being held accountable and that cancel culture does not exist. Well, both you and I and many others we could name are living, breathing proof that it is real and it has a devastating effect on our lives. 
So you said that you crumbled. You were with your family and your girlfriend. What, what happened to you? I mean, you must have felt like everything had just you'd lost everything in that moment. Yeah, and I, I I'm, I'm not usually one for raw emotion, but I, I was, I was in a literal heap on the floor in floods of tears my my family and my girlfriend were very concerned about me i mean they hadn't seen me in that kind of state before um i i couldn't really see a way out and it was the combination of you know this this wasn't being cancelled or expelled from a course because i couldn't keep up with it you know it was it was beyond my my grasp or i had failed some essays this was because i had dared to raise concerns about children's welfare and well-being and to, to be effectively punished for that was 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 awful and then the, the worst thing was this that evening i just had a feeling and i at this stage i wasn't even as active as i am these days in social media but i i had a feeling that i needed to go and check my institution's twitter account so i just went on to it I'd ne- I, it was the first time i'd ever been on their twitter i think from memory and I saw that the same day that they'd expelled me, they'd published a, a tweet saying that they had expelled a student, which was very obviously me because my name was doing the rounds on Twitter at that point. And so they say they state we've expelled a student. And then alongside that, they put out what they termed a statement of solidarity with the LGBT community. Wow. So they defamed you effectively. Yeah. And when when you received this email, did it mention transphobia? Did it did it? explicitly state why they were expelling you no they, they basically alluded to the, the, the petition and, and the things that i've been speaking about and writing about but no I, I wasn't all i was told was i'd brought them into disrepute but the meaning of that wasn't explained I, I wasn't provided with any of their policies i wasn't provided with the nature of the complaints they received i wasn't provided with any evidence at all it was literally this two paragraph email that's all i was left with i I, again i went to log on to my kind of university intranet portal where all the policies are held because i thought i need to have a look at these bloody policies um and they had blocked my access to that as well so i couldn't even access the policies under which they had claimed to have done this this is horrific and how long did it take you to decide that what they had done merited a legal challenge uh, well, as I say, the, the, the first evening I was basically in this kind of depressive resignation almost. I, I, I kind of couldn't really see any way out. And then, you know, I, I talked it through with my family. I talked it through with my girlfriend. I thought, I've, I've, you know, I've got to do something about this. And actually, because I was aware of her and what she'd been through, the first person I reached out to was Maya Forstatter on Twitter. And I sent her a message. Um and explained what had happened and immediately she came back and said you know this sounds from my experience like a discrimination case and she put me in touch with her lawyer who is now my lawyer uh, Peter Daly and from that point on basically everything shifted um, because I spoke with Peter about this and you know he he was, was astounded what had happened and and he said, I think, I think we've got something here. And so I, I tried to shift the narrative over the next few days, actually, because I was, I mean, I was feeling very sorry for myself. And I mean, I still do. I still, I, I still would say that given what happened to me, I, 
I was a victim of discrimination, you know, at that time. But I, I wanted to change the balance of power here because now bringing the litigation as I am, you know, I'm seeking justice. I'm trying to right the wrong that happened to me rather than just sat moping around, kind of crying into my pillow. So what's the case based on? What's the legalities of it? It's based on discrimination and, and victimisation arising out of that. It's, ba- it's, it's I mean, we're, we're utilising the precedent set in Maya Forstatter's own case around gender-critical beliefs, basically, um, because there were a few beliefs at play. There was my belief that sex is immutable and binary, you know, the kind of standard gender-critical belief, but there were also beliefs in the mix around the treatment of children. Um, and that, that was a big thing, because what I've been speaking out about was needlessly medicalising children for a mental health condition. Right, exactly. Which is what led me to write about this issue back in 2003, when I got in contact with the Tavistock Gender Clinic. I was researching a piece for the Telegraph magazine, because I'd seen that 16-year-old girls had begun to present in a clinic in the Netherlands, and were being sent for double mastectomies. And I thought, well, I wonder what's going on here. And at that time, of course, you know, it was pre-social media, and so there was no great kind of charge of, you know, pre-pubescent or post-pubescent girls wanting to opt out of girlhood. Um, that, that obviously came later, but, you know, it's, it's something that has been of concern to people for a long, long time, and they've been talking about it, but we haven't heard about it because, of course, there was no industry, there was no trans industry as there is now. Mm. And so, so what, what then happened when you went to Childline? So, so, so this had happened, but did, were you still volunteering there? Did you go after your course, you'd been kicked out of your course? Yeah, I, I, I was still volunteering there. I had been raising some concerns with Childline, as I think I may have mentioned earlier, about things like Stonewall being involved in... Uh, for example, I discovered that Stonewall had been involved in helping craft some of Childline's web pages and some of their training materials on gender identity, which was concerning. And I, 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 I was speaking to some senior management members within the NSPCC about my concerns. And at the time, they seemed to be at least willing to hear me out, although it turns out in the end, they basically just ignored everything I said. The Childline set of this web page for gender identity, and it basically is a roadmap towards transitioning, as far as I'm concerned. So, yeah, but but at the time, the, the senior management in the NSPCC said to me, under no circumstances are you allowed to publicly reveal the fact that you volunteer a Childline. And I pushed back against that, and I said, you know, on, on what basis? At the end of the day, it is a fact that I'm a volunteer for Childline. Um, and, you know, you're basically trying to shut me down by not allowing me to reveal such a fact. Uh, and basically, it was that that caused them to get rid of me. And they, they said to me that um, if anyone found out that I was volunteering there, that it would put people off using the service. It would put children off using the service as well, because, you know, my, my beliefs and views were out of step with Childline and the NSPCCs. Um, and so I was I was meant to have a, a meeting with one of the directors in the NSPCC to talk about some of my concerns. That's what I thought the meeting was about. We'd had it scheduled for a week or two and we'd jump on a Zoom call. And within the first minute, he says to me, James, um, 
we're going to have to let you go. Please don't come in for your next shift. Oh, my God. So just like that? Yeah. And actually, on that call, given that this was just a few weeks after I was expelled from my course and I was still in a pretty fragile state, um, I basically did start crying on the call. Um, and I just felt... Uh, I felt the walls closing in around me. I, I just couldn't believe that this was happening again, particularly after five years of volunteering there. Um, and, and basically, the call ended kind of with me still in tears on the other end of the line. I mean, there wasn't a jot of empathy coming my way. Did you think at that stage you were going to have to take action against both the course and Childline? Had that started to occur to you? Yeah, it looked like I was going to have to take action against my course. Um, Childline was, was was difficult because I was a volunteer there and, you know, I, I went through the internal processes to try and appeal against what happened to me. But basically, as far as I'm concerned, they breached their own policy and, and just ignored the points I was making. And so they decided on appeal that, no, I, you know, I couldn't come back. Um, but because I was a volunteer whether or not I had any legal standing to bring a case seemed really debatable. Um, and I decided I had to focus my attention on, on the course, basically. So mm, there doesn't seem to be any pathway for me to kind of seek justice against the NSPCC and Childline other than speaking out about what happened. That's kind of what I'm I'm resolved to. But but what did happen with, with the expulsion from the course is that my girlfriend, now fiancé, is a data protection lawyer, and she advised me to put in a kind of subject access request for my personal data which isn't something I was previously really au fait with. But I did that. I did that to my to the university course, and I also did it to the therapeutic regulatory body, which is called the United Kingdom Council for Psychotherapy. It's basically the main accreditation body for therapists because um, I was registered with them as a trainee psychotherapist. And basically what came to light off the back of that was some correspondence c- communications between the two. Um, and it began to appear as if my therapy regulatory body had some hand in what happened to me right okay which is why we love those subject access requests and how helpful they've been in so many of the cases where they've gone after us what did you see what what shocked you the most are you able to talk about it prior to this evidence being heard in your case yeah so I, i had i had reached out to my regulatory body a few months prior expressing a concern about the way that the conversation was happening around this topic and I I sent them a copy of an article that I'd written and I asked whether they would consider publishing it in their magazine that they circulate to members and I asked whether somebody within senior management would be willing to have a conversation with me about my concerns um, and I was told no to both of those things but also I received an email from the registrar of the therapeutic body which I took to be very threatening. And it basically said, you have to comply with all of our policies, including on gender identity, et cetera, et cetera, if you want to qualify as a therapist. Oh, and by the way, we're going to send a copy of your correspondence that you've, give, you've sent to us to your training institute because they should be aware of this, which, you know, which I took to be basically be a threat, you know, get in line or else. Um, yes. And the subject access request demonstrated that they had actually sent my correspondence and what I'd sent to them to my university institution and there was a line in it which basically said we are deeply concerned about this and reading between the lines you know and this the the therapeutic regulatory body accredit the course 
and here they are saying to them, we're deeply concerned about this student of yours, you know, what are you going to do about it? And their concern, their concern was basically because you were questioning the affirmative um, approach to young people who identified with or who presented with distress over their sex, gender identity. Correct, because all of the major therapeutic bodies have signed up to this thing called the Memorandum of Understanding on Conversion Therapy, which is basically a precursor to kind of legislation in this space. And it, myself and many others, therapists and trainees, are concerned that this basically pushes an affirmative approach. Um, and we're concerned about the transparency of the group that has created this document. You know, we, we've tried to meet with them. They refuse to meet with us. A lot of the individuals who sit on this committee seem to be gender ideologues, as I would I would term them. Um, they seem to be a law unto themselves. So we, we were concerned even before the government said they were going to introduce legislation. We were concerned about this document. Um, and yeah, I mean, what was I as a concerned member of the therapeutic community am not allowed to challenge a document by which I am kind of bound by if I if, yeah. if I think that there's some real issues around safeguarding children I'm, I'm not to mention that that that's all I had done this thing about conversion therapy drives me absolutely wild so uh, you know as a lesbian who has met gay men and uh, women who have been forced to undergo conversion therapy in order to make them heterosexual it's so distressing to talk to those people and hear their stories and I in fact as an undercover journalist underwent conversion therapy in Colorado in a small Christian town a few years ago presenting as someone who was deeply unhappy because my parents and my church had rejected me when they discovered I was a lesbian and all these decades later, I wanted to get back to the church and have my family forgive me. And it was clear from what I was telling the therapist in my persona that there was no way that I was attracted to men, that I absolutely was a lesbian, and that the problem I had was external bigotry and prejudice, not anything to do with um, my own feelings. And still, she tried to you know, convince me that, that I was straight. And it, it's, it was so distressing to me, even as an undercover journalist with an assumed identity. It had a real tangible effect on me. And the idea that offering talking therapy to distressed, disturbed, ill young people in order to prevent them going down the trans route and lifelong medication... The idea that that's the same as conversion therapy is such, it's so deeply offensive. It's the opposite. It's allowing young people to live in the bodies that they are in. And how the hell did we get to this? That we're saying to kids, yes, you are trans. Calling them by opposite sex pronouns. And then medicating them. What happened? Well, look, your insight into conversion therapy um, is hugely important because you, you, you know what harms do exist out there and what these activists and what the government at one point were planning to ban 
uh, far from undoing any harm was actually going to be a cause of great harm to therapist and to the clients. Um, it's 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 just it's it's so bizarre because you think about the core tenets of therapy of medicine. You know, you think about the Hippocratic oath and not not wanting to do harm. You're also not to go into the therapy room with a predetermined outcome. And if you've already decided that you are going to affirm that yes, if they want to have surgery and irreversible hormones, that they should do that, you're going in with a predetermined outcome. Um, it's it's bizarre. We don't treat any other mental health condition like this. And I keep I always come back to this point, and I sound like a broken record, but gender dysphoria is a mental health condition. Yes. Um, anorexia, body dysmorphia. If a client came into a therapist and said, "I'm I feel so obese and and ugly," the therapist is not going to turn around and say, "Well, if that's how you feel, then yes, yes, you are you are obese and you are frightfully ugly, and yes, you should have liposuction or plastic right. surgery." Um, equally. There's another mental health disorder called body integrity identity disorder, which is basically where an individual doesn't like a part of their body. It, it feels like it doesn't belong to them. It almost feels like alien to them. And, and sometimes they will want amputation. And if somebody with that mental health condition presents to the NHS and says, can you please amputate my arm? The NHS is not going to amputate their arm. And yes, if a young person these days comes in and says, I hate my body, I don't want to go through puberty, I want my breasts removed, etc., 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 the NHS will say, okay. And isn't it fascinating when we look at what happened with um, body dysmorphia, as I knew it as, the I don't like my limbs, there's an arm I want rid of, I see myself as a double amputee. And there were some operations in Scotland uh, a few years back, in the early 2000s, I think it was, or 2007-8, where a psychiatrist called Russell Reed, who was mainly known as diagnosing people as transsexual, as it was then, um, transgender later on, he actually signed off, five, I think it was five patients in Scotland for surgery to have limbs removed, and there was such a scandal about it that that practice was halted. And of course, since then, it's seen as an abhorrence in the medical community. But that did happen. And interestingly, Russell Reed, the psychiatrist, was also disciplined and he was um, his practice with transgender identified people was ceased. He's since retired. There was a big scandal about him signing... Um, affirming people as transsexual or transgender within 20 minutes of meeting them. So why can't, why can't we see how absolutely obscene this is that we're doing it to children, which is what you were trying to do with your petition and with your respectful questioning at Childline and, and in, in your life in general? Well, this is it. I mean, I, I guess I get... I mean, I get called all sorts of things <clears throat> online, but I, I get accused of being a quote-unquote conversion therapist. And this is based on revealing in interview and in writing that when I was counselling a child line, rather than simply affirming them, I would explore with them areas of their life they were unhappy about. I would explore with them whether they had, and many of them had experienced harm or abuse or bullying. And I would I would also do some kind of very basic therapeutic type techniques, including, OK, let's imagine into the future that you have this 
hormonal treatment, you have this surgery, will you be happy? And the answer almost always was no, because there's still X, Y, Z I hate about myself. And even even just that, that very subtle technique gets a young person to think about, well, actually, is this a silver bullet or is this just a symptom of wider disease and and um, unease that I've got in myself and in the world around me? So supposedly, according to many activists online, that that is conversion therapy. As far as I'm concerned, that is just the core duty of any therapist, which is to be open, explorative and curious. Yeah. And as a lesbian, I consider it to be conversion therapy when you've got a young gender dysphoric woman who hates herself because she's attracted to girls and she's been told she's a freak. Um being told that she's a trans man. That is conversion mm. therapy. So let's talk in the last five minutes or so we have, I want to know how we can support you and what the next stages are with your legal case. I mean, the last 18 months, I have I feel that I've seen the best and the worst of humanity and human nature. And I, you know, I do receive a hell of a lot of abuse online, but I know I'm not the only one. Um, it's unfortunately the world that we seem to be living in. But I've also met some fantastic people and the support I've received and the generosity to help me crowdfund this case has been incredible. Um, I've been extremely warmed by that. Um, and I said I've built up a lot of good relationships um, with individuals and groups, people that I hadn't really previously engaged with that much. I do think it's interesting to reflect on, just very briefly, some of the infighting that I see taking place because... I, I do witness this a lot. And, you know, when, when we're thinking about the fact that children's welfare and also women's rights and safety is on the line here, I, at times I would like to see more, more um, of a collegiate atmosphere, if that makes sense. So, for example, there are times in which I'm speaking out about these issues and I'm receiving messages or things on Twitter from from some women's rights campaigners basically telling me to shut up and stay out of it because it doesn't concern me. Uh, really? Uh, yeah. Wow. I mean, it concerns everyone who's worried about the medicalization of young people and about this ideology and its creeping effect on our institutions. Well, this is this is what I'm saying. I, I wrote an article before saying that every single one of us has skin in the game on this one. Um, but I, so I, 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 do, I do feel that a bit sometimes, which I think saddens me, partly because, you know, <laughs> We're all we're all wanting the same things here, and and the stakes are just so high. So I, I, I suppose that's just a plea to everyone on this side of the argument to say that you know I think we need to kind of work together as best as possible. Um, and, but but on the whole, yeah, the support has been has been incredible. So all, all I can ask for is that people continue to speak out, continue to to support me if, if people are able to. I know it's extremely difficult financial times at the moment, but if people are able to donate and allow me to see this case through to the end, that's also greatly appreciated. Well, there are lots of people with, with you know, um, a lot of disposable income uh, on high salaries with personal wealth who don't speak out, who haven't done anything practical or public to support those of us going through this and so I would make a plea to them if you don't want to get yourself caught up in this hellish war put your hand in your pocket and your conscience will be um what's the word you can go to bed with an easy conscience at night when's the next hearing give us a timeline of the case so that we can all look out for it yeah so we had a preliminary hearing a few months ago and we got the judgment from that a couple of weeks ago and 
there's some there's some good points there's some bad points um we're currently deciding what to do the, the, there is a chance that we end up having to kind of appeal some of these points and if that happens then that's going to cause quite a delay um so i'm, I'm hoping it doesn't come to that um if that happens then it, it could be it could be 2024 before this gets to trial if it doesn't happen it's probably going to be middle of 2023 either way there's still a bit of a road ahead of us on this one but it's all going in the right direction and as things stand in this current moment as we speak the status quo is that there is going to be a trial against both the university institution and the therapeutic regulatory body um and that's going to allow all of this to to, to come to light and i'm i'm very much looking forward to that day in court and what are you doing with your life now and whilst you're waiting for this case to be heard well, I, I still have a job um, in the public sector to keep a roof over my head. Um, my desire to become a therapist is kind of on hold. I'm in a bit of a state of limbo at the moment. I, I hope to one day be able to re-engage with this again, but I, I, I need to wait until the end of this litigation. And, and I've also lost a lot of faith in the therapeutic community. I know there are some, many decent therapists out there, but... The way in which it as a collective has approached this topic, um, I've lost a hell of a lot of faith. So I, I need to do a bit more reflection myself on, on what to do going forward. But so much of my focus these days is on the, on the litigation, but also the issues. I mean, this is such a fast moving space and we've had some real legal victories. We've got, you know, Charity Commission now investigating mermaids. We've got the Tavistock closing. We've got new NHS guidance suggesting, fingers crossed, this doesn't change, that they will stop prescribing puberty blockers except for formal research study so things are going in the right direction but we need to keep speaking out about this and I'm basically although I have effectively been cancelled in a number of ways I'm not going to shut up about this because it's too important. Well thanks for all that you're doing James and your case will undoubtedly make a huge difference to the way that young people are being treated when they present with gender dysphoria um, and we're very grateful to you and really lots of luck going forward we'll be in touch and we'll keep posting updates about the case as and when thank you julie i don't know about you but i found that story very upsetting and i want to support james as much as i can and i know that money is tight for many of us right now but there might be those listening who have got plenty of disposable income but who don't or can't, for whatever reason, speak out about this issue and do anything public. If that's you, please give some money to the crowdfund. I know that there are many of these going around, but I do think we need to stand our ground and make good law. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.